one of the things that happened with my story in that picture is everyone was like, oh my gosh, your dad is so proud of you. What a great man. You raised such a great daughter. And everyone was talking about how great this man was. And I was just like, sometimes? I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. A powerful moment captured at a Black Lives Matter protest in... On June 3rd, 2020, a small group of protesters gathered in Whitefish, Montana in support of Black Lives Matter to condemn the recent murders of Armored Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. Among them was 27-year-old African-American whitefish native Samantha Francine, who would quickly become the star of a viral photo of her staring down an enraged racist twice her age, Jay Snowden, raising her sunglasses and forcing him to look her in the eye as he spewed his hatred. Later, Snowden was charged with disorderly conduct, and Francine became a symbol of American hope and strength, empowered not just by her bravery, but by the story behind it. In every interview, Francine credited her late father, who was white, for instilling in her the mantra to always look a racist in the eye so they can see your humanity. The photograph and the story were picked up by every major media outlet, in part because of its feel-good message about a single father of biracial children who empowered them to stand up for themselves, wouldn't he be so proud of the woman Samantha had become. That's where the story ended. Until now, when Samantha opens up to Erin and Elizabeth for the first time to give a fuller picture of her father's tragic life, death, and the complicated truth of his legacy. The first time I remember being called the N-word, I was in first grade, and it was like a kid in my class, and they had said that's what their parents called me, and I was seven, I didn't know what that was. I went home and asked my dad, and the shock that he felt, the look on his face, like is something I won't ever really forget, it really left an impression on me, even at that age, and he tried to explain it to me, and he tried to explain that some people were just not going to like me because of my skin color, and trying to explain that to a seven-year-old, I feel for all of my friends that have children, because I don't understand how you could explain that. Did your dad, as a single dad, make it a point to tell you as his only daughter that you were that we were beautiful or to really celebrate you? Oh, um, yes. That was one of the best things about my father is he really did make me feel beautiful, especially when he was healthy. He really did celebrate me as a young woman. And after my mom left, he learned how to do my hair. And he, I mean, people used to compliment us, <laughs> literally us. And that was like before the internet. So it was my dad really taking the time to figure it out. Or like he would just type in like how to do your little African-American girl's hair. When he was healthy, my dad was our biggest fans. My dad was always at our, our musical events. I mean, he wanted us to feel like we were amazing. And he had a really great way of doing that. He was the funniest man. I was just telling a friend the other day, Chris Farley was my first crush because of my dad. So <laughs> I was like, funny and fat are like the best things ever. And that was my dad. <laughs> But my dad always encouraged us to stand strong in who we are. My mother wasn't in the picture at all, and she's the African-American side of me. And so it was just always in the background. Are you from Montana originally? I was born in L.A. We moved out here when I was two. So my little brother was six months old. My older brother was four. 
And we moved out here. Both my parents were addicts. They were both trying to get clean. And so those first few years, I don't really remember much, obviously. But it wasn't up until my mom left. She left when I was four. I have not seen her since. I have not communicated with her since. I don't know who she is. I know where she is. I know that she's alive and that's about it. But after she left, that's when things started to change. Obviously, my dad was struggling with the loss of his wife. And then he was a single white father in Whitefish, Montana with three black babies in the you know early to mid-90s. I mean, we were the anomaly. <laughs> and you know, thinking about that now as I'm older, like I'm, that was a lot of stress, I'm sure, on top of the pain. My dad was a grip in the movie industry and he was, he fell off a, uh, a gurney and broke his back. And that's why we, he retired us here. He always knew he wanted to raise his kids here. So when he couldn't work anymore, that's why we came. However, when we got here, it's not like my dad could really enjoy it. He was in pain all the time. Mm. And that was way before like narcotics and things were more regulated like they are now. And so they were just feeding my dad in pills as if it was like Tylenol. And my dad was a schmoozer. My dad was probably the most charming, convincing human. So I think there was also a little bit of that, of the manipulation factor. My dad was you, And my dad didn't drink. You know, I think about that often. I'm like, huh, interesting. But, but it was definitely pills. And as he got worse with the addiction, that's when the abuse started. My dad would be violently angry and he would scream and then it was very physical. Would he take it out on you when he was coming down? Yeah, I think there was like, yeah. And even when he was using, depending on like where he was, because sometimes he'd be like high and hilarious. We thought kids, we thought it was hilarious. We're like, oh my gosh, dad's a clown. <laughs> and then it was like, sometimes it was terrifying. And <laughs> it was like, oh shit. Like, oh no, like, what do we got to do? And Brent and I, essentially, my older brother and I raised Kellen. My dad, as we got older, the addiction got worse and worse. And we always made sure Kellen was okay. As the two oldest, you took care of your little brother. We changed diapers. We figured how, especially when my dad was like going through a bender, whatever we could reach in the fridge or whatever we could get in the cupboards, we would just make sure that we had food and whatever and make sure that Kellen was okay. Kellen... To this day, like I'm very protective of that young boy, <laughs> man. Um, but he's he's the closest thing to a son I've ever had, and yeah, he was always our top priority. Did your dad ever hit you when it wasn't out of anger? Yeah, but it, my dad didn't really need much of a reason to hit us. When he was upset, we just knew. If we didn't clean our house in time, if we didn't walk the dog long enough, if something wasn't put away, I think the fear part of religion mm. really affected him, and he really tried to do that with us. So there was a lot of fear. We didn't get spanked. We got beat. We it wasn't with a, a spoon or a swat. It was my dad's studded belt, you know. Yeah. So it was. It was never light. It was always after. It was something like that hurt you, me more than it hurt you. Did one of you get it worse than the others, or was it pretty evenly distributed? Helen, my baby brother, um, he did better because Brent and I got the blame for everything. My dad really treated Brent and I like adults. Brent and I, we were grown ups our whole life. So Brent and I definitely got it worse. I, I think, depending on who you'd ask, I was very combative as a kid. I'm a very strong-willed person. And my dad used to try to break that down for me. And I always came up with ways to be like, 
I'd put on all my underwear so that when he beat me, like there would be padding. Like I was just like, you're not going to break me down. You're not going to make me cry. So I think I just pushed him more than the other two where they were like, Sam, shut up. And I was like, no, what's going to happen anyway? He needs to understand that he raised me. He doesn't want us to take shit from anybody. So then why would I take it from him? Right. You know, you taught me to be a certain way. I'm not going to let you treat me the way you say that people aren't supposed to treat me. And how old were you when this was going on, Sam? I mean, five till 11. I mean, that was six years. You know, I've talked to my brothers in depth about us being honest about our stories. The fact of the matter is I love my dad. I always will. And I miss him. You know, I miss that man that made me laugh. I miss him being the loudest person in the room. I miss all those things. But there was layers that people didn't see. How did your dad get help raising you? And what did he do for money? What did he do for a living? So we lived primarily off of my dad's disability. And I hate to speculate, but I'm an adult now. And I think about all the people that were coming in and out of our house. I'm sure that there was some backdoor money as well. Um, Again, my dad was a very big people person and immediately just was people just loved him he was again just funny and loud and personable and my dad really would help anyone we were always at somebody's house fixing something helping something moving something that's just my dad and that's who I have become apparently when my dad got saved we grew up in the assembly of God so evangelical as well so Mm -hmm. when my dad got saved we were still in California but he came up here and we found the Whitefish Assembly of God Church and we met my godparents, Scott and Erica, who are now my parents, while we were going there. And they, Erica, uh, can't have babies, unfortunately. And my adopted parents loved children. Scott, my adopted father, was like the children's pastor of the church. And Erica was the worship leader. And they just became fast friends. And we were in church all the time. Three times a week was like a slow week for church. (laughs) And that's a whole other layer of trauma in itself. But they just became family and their family became our family. And so we were just thrown into this new family. My dad had some issues with his family and we definitely didn't know Michelle's family, my biological mother. So we were taken in by this local family that kind of just became ours. Did you have any of those awkward Judy Bloom moments being that you were the only girl in the house? And Erica's just like, you're a girl. I was like, I don't know what that is. I'm one of the boys. And so she used to take me out like one Saturday a month to just take me shopping and like do girly things with me because most of the time I was rough and tumbling with my brothers and and their friends. And that's where I felt like I belonged. It was one of the guys. And then I'd go out with her and do something girly. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool too. But I mean, I remember getting my period the first time. And again, there's no women in my house. I was like, Dad, as long as I could remember, I knew that I was going to be a woman soon. He just kept telling me, you're going to be a woman soon. I was like, what does that even mean? And I remember it happened. And then he gave me the biggest pad you have ever seen. This day, I've never seen anything like it. I don't even know if they make things like this anymore. And I was an 11-year-old girl. And I was like, where am I supposed to put that? He's like, put it there and you'll be good. I don't think that's what they are talking about in health class. This is a freaking diaper. Like I was, how am I going to do this? So my dad's best friend, our friends, Dennis and Kim had five daughters. And so after me being like, dad, I don't know if you understand 
what an 11 year old's body is this isn't gonna work i can't go to school with a pad sticking out of my jeans and he was like all right we'll take you to kim and she was like oh and, oh honey no and then she gave me something that was way more appropriate and those girls were like my sisters so, like when we would spend time with them for like family barbecues and camping trips and things like that they were definitely influential on that part for me too they helped fill in the blanks for a lot of things so my dad was like oh that's just gonna happen <laughs> and why is it happening to you <laughs> it was just like all these questions and then it was just like why do I feel so emotional? It's just like all these things that he was just, it's its natural. I'm like, I need a little bit more support than that. Can we talk a little bit more about Whitefish? It's not only a sort of well-known resort town in Montana, it has fewer than 10,000 people. It's beautiful. It's a ski town. It's also home to the white supremacist Richard Spencer, who was famously punched in the face on camera by an anti-fascist activist, was a speaker at the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally a couple years ago where a woman was killed. I'm I'm curious about his presence in the town, number one. And number two, if after this happened to you with Jay at the rally, at the Black Lives Matter rally, you know, what was the response? Were people were people surprised? Does Spencer really have a presence there? Were people shocked that this had been your experience? Oh, totally. And I mean, the funny thing about, and it's not funny, I don't even know the correct word to use for that, but in 2017, when the white supremacist groups got together and they were going to do a Nazi march through Whitefish and end up at a woman named Tanya Gersh's house, who's, was, who's a prominent Jewish figure in our community, and the rabbi here, Francine, who has become a, an amazing ally, when those people were targeted, that's what they were saying then. And that was 2017. Oh my gosh, we didn't know we had this problem here. You know, when this happened, it was the same thing. Like, oh, we just, I didn't know this happened here. And it's like, he lives here. He's one of the alt-right leaders and he lives here. I used to work at a restaurant downtown Whitefish and I came in one day and my buddy was like, uh, Richard Spencer's over at table 31. And I was like, ooh, I want to sit. He was like, really? I was like, yeah obviously and so he'd ordered a drink from my friend and I brought it to him and I was like can I take your guys's order and I mean he just looked at me and he's like no I think we're gonna go and I was like oh I'll get your bill he wouldn't even like look me in the eye but he wasn't gonna stay either and I think about that moment sometimes now just because I'm I've been into getting closer to the Jewish community here in the valley just because they are my allies I don't have African-American I, there are some I don't want to say there's none and I've reached out to a lot of relationships performing but the Jewish community has really come together for me and been such a strong support and love and ally system for me I'm really thankful but yeah that's here and it's been here and so this happened I mean there's people just flying their Trump flag all the time the comments on videos and photos and things like that I'm like if you don't see this as a problem it's just ignorant you know I think about n-word in my face racism it's like moving your kids away from me in the grocery store it was growing up not being invited to birthday parties or the way that people even talked down to me like I was stupid or being celebrated because I wasn't like the ghetto black girls in the inner city it was just things like that like oh you sound like a white girl you talk like a white girl oh my gosh you're actually smart can you jump high can you run fast it's just like, what? I can't jump or run. Like, that is not the genes that I got. You know, but it was like, why would you ask your friends that? So it was things like that. And even trying to explain that, I've had people, especially because of the viral photo, be like, can I ask you a question? And then they'll go on to not not ask me a question. They'll tell me a story of why Whitefish isn't racist. And I'm like, thank you. I was looking to buy records and now I've heard what your daughter dated a black man in college. That's so cool. Thank you. <laughs> can you talk about the day of the protest when the picture was taken? 
It was actually the second day I had been out there. The protests had been going on for a total of four days. Up at that point, a group of teenagers in the valley that I live in started that, and I would like, love to give them credit for it. They were braver than I was. But once I found out that they were going on, I knew that I needed to be out there. Jason and the man in the photo had been circling the block, yelling profanities from his truck, which wasn't new. So it didn't seem significant at the time. I knew nothing about Jay Snowden before this incident. There were some young children there as well. And so when we heard the commotion behind us, there was a kind of this responsibility from inside of me to just turn around and assert myself into the situation just because I didn't know what was going on. Well, so I just turned around to check it out and see what needed to be done. And there was Jay. He was yelling at a priest at the beginning and then yelling at children. And then we locked eyes and I knew that he was going to come yell at me. And he did. He came right up to me. And as you can see, he got very close and was just screaming at me, saying all sorts of awful things like F Black Lives, White Lives Matter, blah, 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 blah. One of the things that my dad always taught my brothers and I was to always look somebody in the eye. You know, you look somebody in the eyes, make sure that they know that you're human. They have to acknowledge that you're human. And in that moment, the only thing I could hear was my dad's voice. I just knew I needed to lift up my sunglasses and look this man in the eye. And I did. And it, it was so natural. He had very beautiful blue eyes. And I'll like never forget that. And it was so interesting. I could see the moment that he had to acknowledge that I wasn't just some random human. I was the young girl that he was screaming at. And so he said a few more things and stumbled over his words and then went back towards the young teenagers. And at that point, the police stepped in and it was over. Did you see fear in his eyes or confusion? Yeah. And when I say fear, it wasn't like he was a, like afraid of me. It was just like you could see that ignorant fear of like he didn't know what he was mad about. He didn't know why he hated me, but he knew that what we were doing terrified him. And there was just, again, I don't, you know, fear is such a, I mean, it encompasses so much, but it was just like the ignorant fear of me being the African-American girl. I grew up two blocks away, like, go back to your home. I'm like, I live like a mile from here, dude. I live in a town called Whitefish. It's self-explanatory. You know, I stand out like a sore thumb. And if you're not comfortable with it, you're not. And that's really what it was. He didn't understand, you know, saying, say their name. It was like, then what the hell are you doing? Why are you, you fought for this? And he didn't understand what we were doing, and it was a threat in his eyes. A man who the Whitefish Police Department says became confrontational during a protest over the death of George Floyd was removed from the scene last night. 51-year-old Jay Snowden of Whitefish was being charged with one count of disorderly conduct. Snowden is due to make his initial appearance on June 17th. Actually, August 18th was his uh, sentencing trial. And, you know, usually you can get that deferred for your first offense. But the judge here, I think, handled it really well. And, he, you know, he was like, you embarrassed our valley. You embarrassed our state. And, you know, you really have to start taking responsibility for your actions. So it's something that will be on his permanent record, which that's really all I wanted. And not because I'm mad at him or even have any sort of like negative feelings towards him. I feel sorry for him. His life is falling apart. He's crumbling. And, and that's not something that makes me feel good. I don't like to see people hurt, but I, I wanted him to learn from this. Do you remember having that conversation with your dad when he tried to prepare you for racism? The one that made him so heroic sounding? 
one of the things that happened with my story in that picture is everyone was like, oh my gosh, your dad is so proud of you. Such an amazing story. What a great man. You raised such a great daughter. And everyone was talking about how great this man was. And I was just like, sometimes. At some point, your dad lost custody of you. What led up to that happening? So we got a dog like a year and a half before my dad died. And he was obsessive about this dog. And he would take us out of school to walk this dog. And we had to walk this dog three or four hours before we could come home. Like we had to. We could not come home. So he would take us out of school. Yeah, it was crazy. And, and even in the wintertime, Montana winters are brutal. And that is what happened. It was the middle of a essentially a blizzard in February, February 13th. And I only remember that because February 14th was a Friday and I was going to give my crush this Valentine's Day card and we weren't able to go to school because of all of this. I'll never forget it. But (laughs) we were walking our dog, Gable, and we walked by my aunt's house and she was like, what are you guys doing? Get in here. So we were just in there and she's like, why are you out here? And we were like, we can't go home and her dad will kill us. And, you know, she was like, what do you mean? And you know, I think we knew that we shared too much, but at the same time, it was kind of like, it was just natural because it was my dad's family. It was just family. So we didn't know the extent of what we were going through. And, you know, they, she was kind of like listening. Oh, okay. And then her husband came home, my uncle, and they like talked and they were like, you guys are going like, to stay here tonight. We were like, really cool. But it, does Brian know? And they were like, well, he'll find out, you know, and she ended up calling out of state a sister of his and basically they were like yeah you can't go home and so they called Brian like hey we're gonna keep the kids and he was like why and they were like Brian they just told us what's been going on and you can't have them and they ended up locking us in her closet for a little bit because Brian did show up and he stayed pretty calm overall there was some yelling but he basically just took the dog and left and that was the beginning of the end everything slowly started to come out um, after that we got a therapist. We had to sit down with people and tell the truth. And at that point, you know, we were scared. There was a moment, there was years actually that my brothers tried to say that we lied. And then we made it up. It wasn't that bad. Do you remember hiding in that closet with your brothers? Oh, yeah. I'll never forget. <laughs> I'll never forget. Because my uncle was a small man. My dad died at 370 pounds. Wow. He was six one, so he was huge, and my uncle was probably <laughs> a quarter of that. I don't know. We, I mean, we were in there, and we're, I remember looking at my brothers and being like, "He's gonna kill them and kill us. Like we're done." So the fear that I felt, because depending on what kind of episode he was having, and fear can do a lot of weird things to people. And I was just so convinced that I was like, "You guys need to call the cops." I mean, and they didn't. And then, but he stayed calm enough to just get the dog and leave. And you know, I remember coming out. And they were like, okay, like, let's have dinner. And like, you know, everything's fine. Were you resentful thinking about what you went through? I'm picturing you at 11 in a closet telling your aunt and uncle to call the police. Were you angry about that? Were you wondering where people were and why people, adults in your presence, weren't cognizant to what was going on or were choosing not to step in? Yeah. So we get taken away. My aunt Kelly was here for a little bit. She basically just got everything arranged. She got us into the house, got basically what we needed to stay with Scott and Erica. And then she had to go back home. Obviously she had kids of her own and things like that. Uh, So then we were staying with Scott and Erica and we've known them. We've known them since I was four. So, I mean, it wasn't weird in that sense, but it was definitely interesting. We, We moved into their home and then, you know, they were taking us to therapy appointments. They were taking us to school and we stayed with them through April. And then in April of 2004, we got put back into my dad's custody for like two weeks. As long as he didn't talk about the court case or do anything, 
make it stay with him. That didn't happen. And I'm not really sure how they figured it out. My brothers and I, well, we probably said something to Cynthia, our therapist or something that made it known that Brian wasn't doing what he was supposed to. So we got taken away again and put back and just got in Erica's custody. And then, and we had babysitters because then, you know, we got out of school in June and some family friends of ours used to babysit us. And so we were with them and there was a day that they picked us up around, it was the 30th of June um, of 2004. They showed up at the house at one o'clock, which was crazy because they usually picked us up around five or six or something like that. And they showed up at one o'clock and they picked us up and we were like, what's going on? They're like, oh, we'll tell you when we get home. And I remember in the car ride back to Scott and Erica's house being like, they found Bryn's weed. Like that in my head, I like thought Bryn had got caught with like, marijuana and my older brother. And I was like, Bryn's gonna get in trouble. Like, this is gonna be awkward. And then we got home and we were sitting on the couch and um, they were like, somebody called the church and they hadn't heard from Brian a few days and they did a welfare check. And uh, unfortunately, they found your father and he is gone. And my brothers and I, I, I mean, I, I can't speak for them. In that moment, I kind of was like, he's never gonna hit me again. He's never gonna touch me again. He's never going to hurt me again. And that was it for me. I, I was in some ways relieved and in some ways really scared, you know, because Scott and Erica, they're so amazing. And for what they did, you know, thinking about it from their standpoint, Erica was 35 when it happened. So a woman who always wanted children, but they couldn't have them to all of a sudden have three adolescent, almost teenagers <laughs> with a shit ton of trauma. The first few years are rough there's a lot of good times but there's we were dealing with a lot and you know and then they were kind of like church we'll just go to church about it we'll pray about it and it was like we're gonna need a little bit more than that we were hurt children and we acted out and we did things and said things and really tried to push every limit that we could and Scott and Erica and I don't see eye to eye at a lot that's just the reality of it and that's okay I love them dearly and I'm so thankful for the sacrifice they made to take for us yeah they're super religious. They're great people. So much love for them. We get along on so many levels, but the love is real. But I also believe that you create the family you want. And I have so many people that have really stepped in to be other moms and dads in my life as well. And I'm really thankful for that. I can see why when people are comfortable, you know, to be like, we got to help them. You're turning your life upside down too. When you go to help somebody in a situation like that, you're taking on some of their trauma as well. And I, you know, I'm not mad at anyone. I have a lot of people in my life that were part of that and we've talked it out, but people let things happen to us that shouldn't have happened. People will around for things that shouldn't have happened. And I don't know if it was just the culture at the time. Yeah, I know that spanking your kids is definitely different than when it was when I was a kid, but we weren't getting spanked. You know, we had bruises and tears all over our bodies. And, um, we were children. And it's your dad. It is complex because I do love him and I don't want to shame my dead father. When we were talking earlier, we were talking about how abuse has a way of creeping into some of our romantic, for lack of a better word, relationships. Can you give an example of what that looks like, that dynamic? It was really good at first. Like He was really supportive of me as a Black woman. And that was the first time I'd ever had a partner like that. And it was really exciting. It was really empowering. And it made me feel amazing about myself and about my body and just like who I was and who I was becoming. Again, when he was sober, he was great. But he chose alcohol. And when he drank, he became a monster. And I still stayed. I tried to stay 
as long as I could because I did love him dearly, but I was sacrificing myself. I was not taking care of myself. I had really just like lost all sense of Samantha. And uh, were you still in therapy at the time when the abuse was going on? I'd been taking a pause, and then right after uh, he had beaten me to a point that like I literally had to lie to people I like lied to my job and like my friend because I looked so bad so after that it's actually when I reached out to Cynthia I didn't tell her what had happened I just said I felt like I was losing myself and I felt like self-harming and I felt like I was like going to a place where I turned a little bit. And so we started talking about other things, the other things that had happened. And Cynthia is really good about waiting till I'm ready, but kind of told her some things. And so, you know, we talked it through and I was like, maybe we should see her together. And she was like, I mean, I'll see you guys. But if he ever lays hands on you, Sam, like I can't see him. Like, okay. And basically I had lied a couple of times to her. And then finally I told her the truth and, and she really helped me find the strength to leave him. It was some like shell of a human that was just going through the motion. Abuse is hard. And when we shame the victim, you're enabling them to stay stuck. And walking away was one of the hardest most terrifying things I've ever done. I was planning on spending my life with him. And now I look back and I'm like, holy shit, what was I thinking? I had really lost the light in my soul for a while. Did you ever connect the abusive relationship as an adult with the one that you grew up in? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's so hard to break that cycle. Yeah. I mean, it really, yeah. The cycle, as I was looking at Jay, all of my adult relationships have some aspect of abuse that I've let happen, you know, and I've let people steal my light and my power. I've let things happen to me because I didn't know I was worth it. I saw my dad and probably every man that I've dated in some ways. And only one of them, I want to be very clear if they ever listened to this, one was physical, but there was a lot of emotional abuse. I was shamed for my body and a lot of my relationships. I was you know, told I wasn't pretty enough or smart enough or good enough a lot of the time, you know, because of the things that make me special, the things that I really celebrate about myself now were the things that people didn't like about me. And that was in some of my friendships too. If I came correct, if I was what you wanted me to be, then I was accepted and loved. But if I acted outside those lines, I was neglected. So I found myself a lot of the times in a lot of my relationships, like sacrificing myself so I could feel loved. And so with Jay in that moment, taking my sunglasses off, uh, intentionally looking him in the eyes. It was me looking at my dad. It was me looking at my fiance. It was me looking at the girls that used to shame me. It was me looking at my boyfriend that made out with another girl in front of me to make me feel like shit about myself. I was looking at everyone who had ever tried to steal my power, who'd told me that I wasn't good enough. But this whole experience really has brought that back tenfold. And I you know, not only am so in love with who I am, but who I'm becoming. And I want to help encourage and support women and men. We heard that Jay's wife, the man in the photo, had been receiving death threats. You reached out to her, right? How did you know how to get in touch with her? When that photo went viral, it, it was like wildfire. It was really quick. I was panicking. I'm a very introverted person, an introverted extrovert, I should say. And so when I saw the views and things going up, I was like, oh, my God. And then somebody had blown up Jay's name and, like, phone number and all of this stuff. And I was like, oof. And I don't like that. Like, this has worked out to be such a beautiful, incredible experience for me. But I never wanted anybody to get hurt by this, especially his wife and kids. And unfortunately, I have been in an abusive relationship or two in my life. When I found out that his wife was getting targeted as well, 
my friend Marcella, we were like, we got to do something. We didn't need it to be public. And I wanted everyone that was listening to me to understand, first of all, I don't hold any malice in my heart for this man, but I also care about this woman. I, I know what it's like to be under the hand of a man that doesn't respect you. And if you can treat a stranger like that, you can only imagine what happens in the home. And so we just, through a friend of a friend, found out where she worked and then we made sure that it was okay. We didn't want to go to her like private address or anything, but we were like, would it be okay if we stopped by with some stuff? And she, you know, she had told this another friend of ours that yes, that would be fine. And so we just got her coffee card, got her a plant, got her some bath stuff, just the feel good stuff. And we brought it to her place of work and we didn't exchange much. We her and I have talked a couple times just like through Facebook Messenger since just to kind of like, how are you? Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, because the first time we met it was trying to hold back tears on both sides. Mm. It was just very intense. And I think as women, we need to be a lot more supportive of each other. It was just a few moments. And then my girlfriend and I just sat outside and we were like, all right, I'm like, well, what's next? What do we do? And then now here I am. <laughs> so. Yeah, Sam, spe- speaking of that or on that note about women supporting other women, Aaron and I were looking at your Instagram there was a, a letter, handwritten letter that you had photographed and posted from a woman who had been at the rally with you that day. And I'm wondering if you could maybe read it because it was pretty powerful. Yeah. So she had been there both nights and I was standing next to her and she had her two little kids out there. And uh, I think her husband was there, but I just ended up sitting next to them and the first night and the second night. And then that second night she was like, hey, can I put something in your backpack? And I was like, I was like, I don't know. She said, well, you just open like after we leave. And I was like, okay. And then I got home and I opened up. So it says, I don't know you, but you are amazing. Yes, amazing. Yesterday, I stood on this corner with you. I was filled with happy tears as people honked in support, but my heart also broke as people were unashamed to yell, fuck you and go home. I was shocked at the number of people who looked straight ahead and couldn't wait for the light to turn green and to not even acknowledge that we were out there. Then I looked at you, your kind eyes and your sweet smile. I would have fallen apart with rage and the dismissal that those people were projecting at me. You were strong. You were amazing. Not an easy thing to do. My family and I support you and acknowledge your pain. And then it's heart, a middle-aged white woman. That is on my desk at work. Like I just sometimes, especially when I'm having a bad day, I'm like, you know, I don't know if she's like following my story or what, but I've never heard from her specifically again. With COVID, it's been really hard to do all the things that I want to do, but I am in the process of starting a nonprofit organization called Ignite. And it's really to just get people of color, the BIPOC community, a voice in the Vahid Valley and hopefully Montana, just to share their experiences. February is Black History Month and we talk about like Martin Luther King and Rose Parks and Malcolm X, if you're like feeling freaky. You, to hear about the same stories and the same people, and there's just so many people of color that get overlooked and their stories aren't told. And so the educational piece is really important to me. And I think conversation really helps break down walls. It also, as much as looking somebody in the eye says, having a conversation and explaining your fears and all of that. I've gotten to talk to so many people over the last few months and really walked away from so many conversations being like, okay, I don't see eye to eye with you, but now I understand and vice versa. And so in that respect, I want to give people of color, anybody who's really felt any sort of oppression, whether it's the LGBTQ community or whatever, a real platform in this white prominent town to be a part, to infiltrate the community in a healthy and productive way, to be a part of city council, to be a part of the education system, to be a part of city politics, you know, to make a safe place for people like me 
to feel at home because I didn't have that here. And if I'm going to be here, I want to make sure that I can change that. So that's kind of what I've been working on. Anybody who has questions, you know, I can really willing to talk to anybody and everyone. I've had uncomfortable conversations. I've had beautiful conversations, but you know, the healing starts with unity and that's us coming together regardless of how that would be. That's my mission. That's my goal. This has probably been one of the best years of my life. I grew. I took my power back. I have found my voice and I'm using it. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. Our supervising producer is Chris Gellis. Want to tell us about your father? Follow us and send us a message at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook or call us at 1-888-318-DADS and leave us a voicemail. If you'd like to, you can become a Tell Me About Your Father Patreon subscriber to get extra content galore for as little as $3 a month. Also, check out Daddy Issues, our bonus Dads in Pop Culture Patreon podcast. Find it and more at patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather. We'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast was inspired by Aaron's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Special thanks to our mums, Betsy Lerner, Anne Thompson, Paige Orvis, and Helen Belgum.